The passage today is chapter 33 in the book of Genesis. Genesis 33. So let us stand for the reading of the word of God. Genesis 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Nope, that's in Exodus. We'll do that next. That we'll do that next month. Genesis 33. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids, and he put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them, and bowed down to the ground seven times, until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes, and saw the women and the children, and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children, whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterwards Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, No, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, Then take my presence from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. And Esau said, Please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the place is called Succoth. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Pandamaram and camped before the city. And he bought the piece of land on which he had pitched the tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of silver. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. You may be seated. This chapter also presents the gospel. Gospel that God 
how God reconciled two brothers. The main character in this chapter is not Esau, and it's not Jacob. It is El Elohe Israel, which means in Hebrew, God, the mighty God of Israel. God, the almighty, omnipotent God of Israel. And so he is the star in this chapter. Now, uh, because it's all about what he did to two men that brought them to reconciliation. Remember where we are so far. Jacob's prosperous. He's a wealthy man. And years before, he cheated Esau, his brother, out of wealth and blessings and inheritance And he lied to his father, told him he was Esau when he really wasn't. And Esau's mad. He's envious of Jacob's wealth. He's mad at Jacob. That's the last thing Jacob heard about Esau. Until these messengers from Esau came to Jacob and said, scared him to death, and said, Jacob... Esau is on his way to see you with 400 men. Well, that scared Jacob out of his wits because he knew that the reason that Esau was coming to see him was to get even for the way Jacob had cheated him out of his wealth and his inheritance. We saw how Jacob worked out a strategy to protect his family. He turned them over to God, number one. He prayed in their behalf and asked God to deliver them. Asked God to be faithful to all the promises he'd made to them. And then he also puts in place a strategy where he divides his large family into two camps so that if Esau came to attack his family, maybe they would kill one half of it and the other half would survive, and his whole family would not be uh, extinguished. So we're reminded of that in this chapter. And he also puts his family in an order with their mothers uh, to, to the best way he knew to, how to protect them. And then he sits and goes and stands in the front. 400 men coming towards you, and you go stand in the front. That says a great deal about courage, doesn't it? He put his family in the back, the ones that were closest to him in the far back, and then he went to the front of the line to greet Isaiah, to greet Esau with his 400 men. So when Esau comes, what does Jacob do? Bows down before him seven times. That is a great sign of humility, a sign of repentance, a sign of desiring to get reconciled. Now, this whole chapter is about reconciliation. 
Reconciliation is at not just the doctrine of reconciliation, but the act of reconciliation by God for sinners is right at the heart of this chapter. That's what this chapter is about. Once again, it's presenting us with the gospel of Christ and how God saves sinners by reconciling them to himself and to each other. If we have time at the end of, the, uh, of our message today, we'll look at a key passage in the New Testament that talks about reconciliation and what that means and how important it is. But right now we see these two brothers. And so Jacob goes ahead and bows down before Esau seven times. He came near his brother. Verse 4. Becky told me last night, and I agree with her, I wish we had somebody, an artist, to paint this chapter. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. This is a beautiful picture of two brothers reconciling with each other. Now, why did they reconcile with each other? Because God changed both men. And that's the story of reconciliation. God reconciles men with each other by changing them. Israel, that is Jacob, was a crook. He was a deceiver. He lied. He was disrespectful to his father, cheated his brother. God changed his life. He changed his name. And he changed his heart and he changed his life. Esau was an evil man, a reprobate. He didn't want to be involved with the covenant of God. He didn't want to be involved with the God of the covenant. He didn't want the blessings of the covenant bestowed upon him. He'd rather fill his stomach with stew than his heart with the blessings of God. He hated his brother, and God changed him. Esau, I don't think, was counting on that. Esau figured there's going to be one or two things happen. When Jacob and I meet, uh, I'm either going to whip him or Jacob is going to surrender. He had no idea that God was going to change him both. God changed, now listen, this is real theological, but it's true. And it helps you understand the way God works in the Bible. God changed Jacob's heart to a heart of humility and submission and brotherly love by his sovereign saving grace. God had mercy upon Jacob. God was gracious to him. That grace was undeserved, and it had a sanctifying effect upon Jacob's life. Jacob's life was changed, and his character was changed by the saving grace of God. But what changed Esau's life? God hated Esau. Esau was not a child of the covenant. So how did God change Esau's life? 
God changed his life to one of brotherly love and kindness by the power of his common grace. God changed Jacob and sanctified his heart by the power of his saving grace. And God changed Esau's attitude, didn't sanctify his heart, still was a rebel, but changed his attitude towards Jacob by his common grace. Now, what is common grace? There is such a thing. The Bible says that God caused the rain to fall and the sun to shine upon the good and the bad alike. There is a sense in which God is merciful to all men. And he shows that mercy in a lot of ways. He shows it by restraining their sin, holding back by his hand their sin against God. God shows his mercy to all people by enabling even rebels to produce good things and to do good things on occasion, like reconciling with your brother. God had no intention to change Esau's character. He had no intention to sanctify Esau. He had no intentions to uh, save and heal Esau. God was an enemy to Esau, and Esau was God's enemy. God, in his unmerited common grace and mercy that he bestows upon all men, reprobate and chosen alike, God helped Esau to love his brother. So both of them were changed by grace. Two different kinds of grace. Jacob was changed by God's sovereign, saving, sanctifying grace. Changed deeply down in his heart and character. And Esau was changed by God's common grace that enables men to do good things even though their heart is depraved. And that enables men, restrains them from doing as bad as things as they could. And so that's the situation here. You see, God reconciling two men by grace. One kind of grace was saving grace, sanctifying grace, and that's the grace God bestowed upon Jacob. The other was a common, undeserved grace that God bestows upon all men that didn't have any effect whatsoever in Esau's heart. But it was powerful enough to override Esau's sinful attitude toward Jacob. And so in this uh, chapter, you see how God reconciles two brothers to each other by grace, by changing either those men's attitude or those men's heart. There are people in our culture today that are worse than Charles Manson, or could be worse than Charles Manson, if God did not restrain them from being as sinful as they could possibly be. 
And so that's the picture you're seeing here. The star in this chapter is the last name in this chapter. Then he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. El Elohe Israel is the star of this chapter. He's the reconciler. He's the one that caused the reconciliation takes place. He's the one that changed Jacob's character. And he is the one that restrained the sin in Esau's life so that he could forgive his brother Jacob. So El Elohe, God, the Almighty God of Israel, is the one that brought about this reconciliation. I emphasize that because when I was in seminary, I was made to read a book I didn't want to read, but I read part of it. And uh, it was called Agents of Reconciliation. And it was on evangelism. And it was on how Christians are to be agents of reconciliation in every area of life. Everything they do is to work toward reconciliation of people, uh, reconciliation of races. Uh, They are to provoke people to love each other. They're agents uh, of reconciliation. Not true. You're not an agent of reconciliation. God is. God's the only one that can provoke reconciliation. And he's the only one that can bring about genuine reconciliation, which is by changing people in one way or another. So here they are. They're reconciled. They've hugged each other. Jacob has humbled himself to bow down before Esau seven times and all his family as well. Esau kisses him. And then uh, Esau, sa- uh, Jacob says, I, I-, I want to give you some presents. I want to give you some things to show you that I'm, I'm really repentant. That, I've, uh, that I'm sorry for the way I cheated you. And I do sincerely want repentance. So I'm going to give you that uh, financial inheritance I, I stole from you. I'm going to give you all that wealth back. And uh, he calls it, in our version, presence. presence. But in the Bible, it's called blessing, as in covenant blessing. Uh, this this uh, blessing that I, I'm giving to you is, I, I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. It was a gift of God to me, a, a gift of God's covenant to me, and I'm giving it to you. I'd rather you have it than me. I want to show you that I'm really sorry and really forget, uh, repentant for what I did. I don't want to do it again. I'm not going to do it again which is what repentance is. Repentance, the Greek word, is metanoia. Repentance means a change of heart that leads to a change of life. My mind's changed. God changed my heart. God is changing my life. I'm not going to treat you anymore like I treated you before, and here's a bunch of money to prove it. Esau said, you don't need to give me that. Jacob said, I know, but I want to do it just the same. 
So he pressures Esau into taking it. Now they're on their way to a certain location. Jacob is on the way to the promised land. He's uh, all the, uh, on his way to a place called Succoth, where he's going to build a house, buy property, and lay claim to the land that's his by covenant. This is a very emotional time in Jacob's life. This is the first time in that whole family they've been able to do this. Abraham was a wanderer. Isaac was a wanderer. Neither one of them could settle in the land that God gave them. This is the first time in that whole covenant family that somebody lays claim and actually settles in the land that God gave them by covenant. So it's an emotional time. Jacob's on his way to that, uh, to Canaan, to the promised land, to buy, build a house, and to live there. So it's a very emotional time for Jacob, first one in his family, uh, to lay claim to the covenant promise of God concerning a land. So Esau says, well, there's a lot of mean guys between here and there. Let me uh, lead the way with my 400 men and protect you so that if anybody tries to bother you, they got my 400 men to deal with. Jacob says politely, no, thank you. Esau says, well, Take half of them. You're going to need some protection. Take half of the my men with you. Jacob said, Esau, I appreciate your kindness. Appreciate your generosity. I don't want any of your men going to the promised land with my family. How do you think Jacob turned him down? For all this hugging and kissing and bowing down on the ground and asking each other's forgiveness and reconciling with each other and Jacob giving Esau a bunch of money and Esau offering to give all of his men at his disposal. Jacob turns him down flat. You think that is? Because... If he'd have gone, had Esau come with him to the promised land, it would have been destroying the antithesis between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It would have been blending and destroying the antithesis, the difference that God put between the church and the world. Jacob knew that he could not afford to blend those whom God loved with those whom God hated. And remember, the Bible makes unmistakably clear that God hated Esau. Throughout the history of the world up to that point, sin always accelerated when the people of God intermingled and blended with the people of Satan. And all the way back when the line of Cain, the evil line, intermarried with the line of Seth, the godly line, 
and uh, blending those two lines, blending the antithesis, the difference that God put between those two families, led to the acceleration of evil in the world and violence to the point that God had to wipe out the whole world with a flood. You remember what we said time and again because the Bible's always emphasizing it. And that is the deadliest sin the church can commit is the sin of synthesis. To blend the church with the world, to let your children marry non-Christians is the easiest way to destroy the church in one generation. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Don't let your children marry non-Christians. Don't blend the difference like you remember in later on we're going to see in Exodus that God brought plagues upon Egypt and uh, destroyed the country of Egypt, actually. Israel was there as slaves and uh, the plagues that destroyed Egypt did not fall upon Israel. Why? Because Israel was nicer and sweeter than Egypt. No, Israel had committed many of the same sins while it was in Egypt that Egypt itself committed. And God destroyed Egypt because of her sins and saved Israel in spite of hers. Why? Because God put a difference between those two nations. And that difference was sovereign grace. That's what the Bible's about, sovereign grace. That God saved Israel even though he deserved to punish her and, and condemned Egypt. And it was because God had chosen to be gracious to Israel had not been chosen and not been determined to choose Egypt. What we say is the theme of this whole Toledoth about Terah. Remember what a Toledoth is? It's a record of the accomplishments of a man's life. And this whole section is about the accomplishments of Terah's life. And Terah was the father of Abraham. And uh, what's the theme of this whole section? The theme is that it is God and God alone who determines who gets the benefits of the covenant and who do not. Keep that in your mind. Because most people in this country today do not believe it. They think it's an unloving thing to say. They can't imagine a God determining who's going to receive his benefits and who's not. After all, doesn't God love everybody the same? After all, doesn't whosoever will may come? After all, does not God offer his blessings to everybody indistinguishable of other people? No and no and no. It's God, not man, that determines who receives the benefits of his covenant. It's not because of some decision that man makes. It is because of a decision God made before the beginning of time.
And you see the same thing here in chapter 33. That God wants to keep the, dis- the difference clear. He's going to destroy the descendants of Esau because of their sins. And he's going to save the descendants of Jacob in spite of theirs. It's the war between the church and the world. You let Esau in the door, eventually it's going to, he's going to destroy the whole church. That's what this is about. This is about keeping the church pure and keeping the church safe by making sure that there's no blending between those whom God hates and those whom God loves. I want you to turn with me to Second uh, Chronicles. Well, let's go to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Now, this is one of my favorite psalms. And the first several verses, pro-lifers love. It's a great pro-life chapter. It's a great chapter that proves that abortion is murder. But pro-lifers don't like verses 19 through 24 very much. One time in 19, I was listening to a sermon I preached in 1992. In fact, it was this same sermon that I preached in 1992. And in there, I told a story I'd forgotten about being asked to pray at a big pro-life rally. Now, the uh, Georgia right to life is completely different today than what it was back then. Back then, it was weak. It was in the control of Roman Catholics. Today, it's the strongest pro-life organization in the country. But I was asked to, to pray. I had a big rally, pro-life, and so I did. And I would be nice, because there were all kinds of people there. So I'd make sure my, my prayer was biblical, but nice, I thought. So I prayed, Lord, we, we pray that you'd stop abortion in this country. Pray that you'd save all the little babies that are being aborted. Pray that you'd convict their mothers of, of uh, letting them be aborted. And Lord, since you uh, curse the wicked and you curse the hands that shed innocent blood, I pray that you would curse these abortionists so they would stop aborting babies. I was never asked to pray for the next 20 years <laughs> for praying such radical, extreme, unloving things like that. And the reason they criticized me is they didn't like verses 19 and following. And now look at verses 1 through 18, chapter 139. They're great in proving that babies in the womb are are real human beings. But then in 19 and following, it says this. Now stop. Don't look. Let me ask you a question. Psalm 139 is in the Bible, right? Is everything in the Bible the Word of God? Everything? So that you can trust everything the Bible says? 
Everything? Okay. Just want to make that clear. Verse 19. Oh, that thou would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. You pray that? Dare you pray that? Why is that prayer in the Bible? It's in the Bible because God is teaching us through this chapter that if you blend those whom God loves with those whom God hates, you destroy the church. That if you don't make a clear-cut stand against those who hate me and those who hate my moral and social order, then you will be a destroyer of the church. We're saying to the world there is no real difference between good and evil. It doesn't matter what man does. Some woman can be a nun, some man can be a priest, or he can be a blatant pervert, an homosexual. It doesn't matter. Who are we to judge? That's where the church is today. And that's why the little story about Esau wanting to to give uh, Jacob his army. And Jacob says, no, I can't afford to do it. I cannot afford Esau to blend the church and the world. I, can't, I must keep separate. I've got to keep the difference clear between those whom God hates and those whom God loves. Because then we'll be numbered among those God hates. How do you know when God hates somebody? Verse 20. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with the utmost hatred, and have become my, they've become my enemies. So those whom God hates are those who rise up against him. They've declared war on him. They've declared war on his covenant. They've declared war on his definition of goodness, on his definition of evil. They've declared war on uh, uh, God's social order and God's moral order. They've declared war on whatever God says, and they're not willing to live by it. They're going to live by their own principles and their own rules, their own regulations. They are against God. They've risen up against them, and they have become God's enemies. Well, you say, Joe, I thought the Bible says we're supposed to love our enemies. Well, we are. We're supposed to do both. We're supposed to love them and hate them. And you say, well, how in the world can that be? How can you love somebody and hate somebody at the same time? 
this way. Stop believing that love is a feeling. Only person that would say, how in the world can you love somebody and hate somebody at the same time, is somebody who thinks love is a feeling. How can you have a warm, sweet feeling inside for somebody and at the same time be gritting your teeth against them? Well, the thing of it is, love's not a feeling. Hate's not a feeling. Now, there are feelings involved because we have physical bodies. God doesn't have any physical body, and yet God loves and God hates. Love is to treat another person the way God says that person should be treated. Hating another person is to stand against and oppose everything that God does and stands for as long as he is a rebel against God. It doesn't mean you have feelings one way or another. That's not the point. You're to love your enemies and you're to hate them. Now, I want you to turn to another passage that most people are, uh, think, don't even know is in the Bible. In the Second Chronicles, chapter 19, this is quite a chapter. Jehoshaphat is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He's a godly man. Ahab is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. He's a wicked king. But Jehoshaphat makes a major mistake. Both of those kingdoms are under threat by foreign power. And rather than just trusting in God to provide for them and protect them, Jehoshaphat feels like he's got to enter into a, an, an alliance with Ahab because they would be stronger together than they would apart forgetting that God was his shield. And then there's this old prophet. His name is Chehu, the son of Anani. Now there's a, king, a judge named Jehu. This is not him. This is a prophet named Jehu, the son of Anani. And he has the courage to address both these kings. What he says. Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and bring God's wrath upon yourself? How dare you? How dare you help the wicked? How dare you love those who hate God? You're only bringing God's wrath upon yourself and defeating the very purpose you want to accomplish of protecting your people. Jehoshaphat did not keep the difference clear. So you see, all through the scripture, you have this great emphasis Difference has to be kept clear between those who God hates and those whom God loves. The church and the world must be kept separate. 
What did the Apostle John say in chapter 2 of 1 John? Love not the world. Do not love the world. Neither anything that's in the world. The love of the Father is not in the world. The things that are in the world are passing away. And only those who do the will of God will live forever. This is strong language, I know. There it is. Why is the church in America where she is today? She let Esau go with her to the promised land. And now Esau taking over the church. So remember, it's a simple little statement, but it's always true. Bad company corrupts good morals. All right, let's go now back to our our passage. So now Jacob's on his way to the promised land to take what belongs to him by covenant. Doesn't let Esau go because he can't afford to break down the antithesis between the church and the world. He can't think like the world. He can't act like the world. He can't relate to people like the world. He's got to be completely different. So Esau goes to his home in Mount Seir, which is outside the promised land. Esau didn't want to go to the promised land. He wanted to live outside it. Jacob goes to Succoth, builds himself a house, and then buys a piece of land and erects an altar, verse 20. That's the last verse in our chapter. Esau goes his own way out into the darkness. Jacob goes into the light of the promised land, buys a piece of land that's his, builds a house, builds an altar, and calls it El Elohe Israel. And what was that signif- the significance of that altar? Four things. Write this down. Four things. Why did uh, Jacob build an altar? Altar. First thing he did, build a house, place to live. But then the first thing he did was build an altar. Didn't start a business. Didn't start a farm. Didn't uh, try to get close to the various other people in the community. The first thing Jacob did when he got in the promised land was to build an altar. Now, that altar signified four things. It signified, first of all, public worship. That's what you do at an altar. An altar in the Old Testament was a place where God's people publicly worshipped him. And Jacob wanted these people to know, Christians, uh, these non-Christians, these pagans, these Canaanites, he wanted them to know this is a Christian family. We worship God in this family. It's the most important thing we do. We want the world to know that we worship him. 
And so he builds an altar so the world can see this family's different. They worship God publicly. Back when my sons were in high school, we would have family worship. And we would uh, sing hymns. We'd read the Bible. We'd pray. And, uh, their, their friends always wanted to be at our house during family worship because they'd never seen family worship before. They'd never been in a house that had family worship. So there was always some teenagers in our house watching us do family worship. But we did something else too. We opened all the windows so that our neighbors could hear us singing. Because our neighbors had never heard anybody sing hymns at home. We wanted this to be public. We wanted people to know we do not worship the gods of this culture. That we believe the most important thing that a person and a family can do is worship the Almighty God, El Elohe Israel, the triune God. Most important thing you can do in your family, most important thing you can do for your marriage is the first thing you do when you get married is you start having family worship. And you have family worship with your wife. And then when children start to come along, you have family worship with them. Sunday afternoon after church was always an important time in our house because our children would sit around the table and I would ask them, what did Daddy preach about today? They had to have an answer. They had to have the right answer. <coughs> And if they didn't have the answer, they'd get a spanking. That means next Sunday they'd get the right answer. So I asked him, what did Daddy preach about today? And John Calvin, my son, said, raised his hand and said, God. I said, John, you only get to say it once. And you just said it. So the most, most important thing you can do is your family and your wife and your children is have family worship with them, read the Bible with them, pray with them, sing with them. Let other people hear you sing. Don't let it be a secret, private thing. Build an altar outside your house, so to speak, figuratively speaking. So that was the first significance of that altar. It was a uh, testimony. The first thing was it was the place where the family worshipped God publicly and they wanted everybody to know it. Secondly, that altar was a testimony to the whole Canaanite community. We don't worship your gods. We don't share your culture. We are in different worlds. We have a different set of priorities. And we want you to appreciate that from the very start. Third, the significance was that Jacob was telling the world God is to be worshipped only by atonement. What do you do at an altar? You kill animals. You sacrifice animals as substitutes for yourself. And so on that altar, they would sacrifice lambs and sheep and the rest. 
as substitutes for themselves, symbolizing Christ. That the only way we can have God to accept our worship is in the name of Jesus and through Him. And it's only by His death on the cross and His substitutionary death in our behalf that God accepts our worship at all. Jesus stood in our place. He took the consequences of our sins. He bore the wrath of God upon us instead of letting that fall upon ourselves. That's what he was telling all the Canaanites. He was preaching the gospel to all the Canaanites. Fourth. There were all kinds of altars in Canaan. There were all kinds of little tribes and city-states. And everywhere there was a knoll or a hill, they built an altar to one of their gods. And it, it's it's a hard thing to build an altar. I mean, you've got to get these big rocks. You've got to get wood and all that stuff. It would have been very easy for Jacob uh, to use one of the altars that are already uh, built. They were all over the place. Some were in disrepair. Some weren't used anymore. Some were, but... The, they were everywhere you turned around, there was a Canaanite altar. Didn't just Jacob take over one of them. Because the difference must be kept clear between those whom God hates and those whom God loves. Now, that's the heart of this story. It's all about reconciliation. I want to conclude by reading to you what the Bible says about reconciliation. Only God can do it. Because to have reconciliation, men's hearts have to be changed. A sacrifice has to be made. Consequences of sin have to be paid for and accepted by God. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's see what God says about that reconciliation that is at the heart of the gospel. Verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things passed away, Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not committing, uh, counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you, on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the heart of the gospel. God reconciles sinners through Jesus Christ. 
by putting our sin upon him and his righteousness upon us. Now, what does it mean to say that we have the ministry of reconciliation? We're to present the world with the word of reconciliation. We're to go out there in the world and tell people that God is a great reconciler, that men can't reconcile themselves, that there will be no reconciliation between China and the United States. There will be no reconciliation between blacks and whites. There will be no reconciliation between any groups divisive against the other in this world, except when God does it through Christ alone. And so this isn't just a little intellectual thing. Let me ask you, have you ever done this? Verse 20, you ever done this? Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God was entreating you through us, we beg you behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Have you ever begged anybody to become a Christian? Have you ever begged anybody to be reconciled to Almighty God through Jesus Christ? That's what we're called to do. Only God can reconcile. But he reconciles people in this world through the word of reconciliation that we share with our own mouths. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a reconciled God. And you have reconciled us with yourself through Christ. You've enabled us to be reconciled to other people. Love you for this story. Love you for the truth in it, hard as it may be in this culture. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to keep the antithesis clear. For Christ's sake. Amen.